Yeah, you guys had enough yet? <laughs> hey, good stuff, good stuff. Worship team, thank you very much. Greg, thank you for your leadership here and your service to us. Um, worship team members, we're grateful for you. I'm not even going to turn around. All right. Hey, um, I'm, I'm grateful to be here with you guys. I want you to know, in two weeks, we're starting a new series, uh, and it's called Anchor Point, okay? Anchor Point, I want you to know now, just so you're kind of aware of what's coming up. Anchor Point is essentially um, going to be a, a, a series that I'll speak on for a little while uh, that will be the idea being, um, I can't even get it out, that there will be seasons and there will be times when you're going to wonder what to do with the faith that you claim. And there will be times and there will be seasons where you're going to wonder what in the world, who am I in light of all of the difficulty and struggle that we're dealing with right now? And what does it mean in the good and the bad to be a follower of Jesus Christ? And if you're on the fence trying to figure that out, what does that look like to be a follower of Jesus Christ? This series will kind of lay out, kind of anchoring down deep into the mystery of God's grace and anchoring down deep into the identity of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ because you know as well as I that the stormy times will come in your life if they haven't already and the question is going to be what are you going to be anchored to during those seasons of life we're going to look at the writings of one of the followers of Jesus named Peter um, probably the most driven of the disciples the most volatile as well if you will and he writes to a group of people uh, early on in the history of, of Christian development, and he writes to them essentially giving them a, a, a letter that says, this is who you are, okay? This is who you are in the middle of suffering, in the middle of a difficulty, in the middle of people looking at you kind of weird. Here is who you are, and anchor yourself to this. And so we're going to be studying Peter's writing and looking at what he has to say about where we have our anchor and as believers and people who are trying to figure out who Jesus is, all right? So anchor point, two weeks from now, all right? Good enough, there we go. Here's our series we're on right now, Jesus, What If? We're in part three of four of that series. Um, been good for me so far to walk with you through that. So we're essentially asking the question, um, if Jesus is actually God, so what? What does that mean? What are the implications? Again, we're not trying to convince you or kind of manipulate or make you think differently than you are. We just want to kind of have the conversation with you and say, what if? Just kind of give us the what if. Kind of enter that world for a minute and say, what if Jesus is actually God? So what? Now, during week one, we basically said this. If Jesus is actually God, then the resurrection changes everything about everything. That hope gets infused into our world in a way that there is no other explanation for because the resurrection changes the rules of life and death. That at the end of life as we know it, there's death, but then the resurrection changes that and introduces life again after death, which is just really weird. But if that's true, then that changes how we see life because death isn't what we think it is. And so it changes everything about everything, right? And then last week we did this. We said if Jesus is actually God, then he sets a standard for what is true. We talked about truth and the concept of both the propositional truth of the words of God, the word of God, and the personal truth that Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. So we looked at truth in our culture and our world and said Jesus actually sets a standard for what is true. Now, this week we're going with another principle, and, and it's simply this, and here's what I think about this principle, um, that this idea uh, that I want to speak to you this morning is so fundamental um, to us that it can change and shape an entire generation or two of people who are in and around you. In fact, you've been shaped by this, um, this way of thinking, and, and that is, how is it that I relate to God? In fact, in particular, what do you mean when you say, and let's just happen to say that you have identified yourself as a Christian? 
what does it mean when you say that? What does it mean to be Christian? And I want to talk about that this morning. Some of you are not in that category. That's fine. You can just listen, you can observe, you can make notes, whatever you want to do. But for those who have ever at some point in their life said, I grew up in a quote-unquote Christian home. I went to a church that taught Christian values. I went to a Christian school, okay? Anyone like that? Here's what I want to say. That if Jesus is actually God, then his ideas about what it means to be a Christian are better than mine. His ideas about what it means to be a Christian are better than mine. If Jesus is actually God, then his ideas about what it means to be a Christian are better than mine. Because everybody has an idea about what it means to be a Christian. Now, what I want to say is this. There are two general approaches, if I can broad stroke it, when it comes to being Christian. There's a first group of people who are kind of over here, and this is what they say. Everybody is a Christian like me. This is group number one. When it comes to being Christian, everybody's a Christian like me. And here's, here's people in that category. You, you know people like this. Um, and we try. We try our best. I'm generally moral. I haven't done any major sins, like the really, really bad ones. Yes, I've failed in sin, but I haven't done all the really bad stuff. Um, and when, hey, when I blow it, I'll acknowledge it when I blow it. But hey, we're trying our best here. And you know what? Hey, my mama was a Christian. My daddy, he was a Christian. My great uncle, he was a Christian. And we lived near a church. And everybody's a Christian, aren't they? I mean, we grew, isn't this Christian America? Like, aren't we in a Christian county, right? I mean, isn't this a Christian, like, area? And isn't, like, the school board, aren't they all Christian people? So aren't I, like, everybody, everybody's a Christian, right? Everybody's a Christian like me. Okay, so there's some people in that category who essentially are going to say that as long as at some point in my life I say, yes, I'm a Christian, then I have become a Christian. Now, there's some people in the other category. Everybody's a Christian like me, and there's other people, nobody's a Christian like me. Right, you don't know anybody like this. Who essentially says, listen, I know you people over there are wrong. And once you learn to follow the rules that we lay down, you're in. Being a Christian means being a member of the club. You've got to learn. It'll take you time, but you'll learn the clothes to wear, right? You'll learn how short you can wear the skirt until it gets a little bit of a, whoa, no, not here. That's too much. And you'll also learn the language. People in this category have different words for things. These people don't get angry. They get frustrated, right? These people never worry or they're never anxious. They're just concerned. They listen to and watch certain things, and certainly not others, and they'll drive certain things, but certainly not other things. They'll set up an entire system. There'll be kind of thresholds, if you will, that you have to cross. There'll be kind of hoops to jump through. Like, you've got to, at some point in your life, you've got to go to a Christian camp, okay? You've got to bring your Bible with you or bring your phone or whatever that has a Bible app on it, right, on the homepage so that people know that you can keep your membership in the Nobody's a Christian Like Me club over here, okay? And there are people like this who essentially will set up the rules of the game and say, listen, nobody, nobody, nobody's a Christian like me, like me. And so we have these approaches of how in the world we uh, use this word Christian, where we have some who are over here who are saying, I just kind of need to declare myself Christian and I live in a moral world. So, hey, I'm a Christian. We have people over here who are like, boy, if only you could do it like me. And nobody, nobody's a Christian like me. 
So what I want to say, if Jesus is God, then what he has to say, his ideas about being a Christian are just flat out better than mine. They're just better than mine. And if we're honest, all of us have little flavors of each of this within our lives, don't we? And each of this within our history, each of this within our upbringing. We do. We do. We just do. And so this morning, I want to kind of give, if you will, two messages, two passages of Scripture around one theme. The theme that Jesus' ideas about being Christian are better than mine. And I want to speak both to those who are kind of in that everybody's a Christian camp and those who are kind of in the nobody's like me kind of camp. Okay? So if you'll go with me. We're going to start over here with the kind of everybody's a Christian deal. So if you have your Bible, I'd invite you to turn to the Gospel of Luke. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's one near you in the pew around you. Luke chapter 9 is our text for this morning. Um, by the way, if you don't own a Bible, that Bible that is in our pew is our gift to you this morning. You can take that home with you if you would like. Um, Luke is the fourth book of the New Testament. It's about on the right third of your Bible. Um, Luke was one of the uh, early writers um, of the Gospels. Um, he was a doctor. And he wrote, um, his Gospel was written for skeptics, by the way. So if you're a skeptic, if you just want proof that Jesus was real, Luke's Gospel is written for you. He wrote this so that people might have, there might be an orderly account put together. And in Luke chapter 9, beginning at verse 18, he recounts this event where Jesus is speaking to his disciples. And, and here's what it, what it says. Verse 18. Once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowds say I am? Now, stop there for a minute. Let me ask you something. When Jesus asks you a question, do you think he doesn't know the answer? <laughs> we're, we're talking about... When I talk about Jesus in this series, I'm talking about a guy not just who's an idea or a moral figure or a teacher, but I'm talking about a guy who is fully human and fully God at the same time. So you can be sure that when Jesus asked the disciples, hey, can you tell me what's happening out there? You can be sure that he already knows the answer and that his question is a setup for a conversation, but he's not asking because he doesn't know. He's setting up a conversation. So verse 19, so they replied, some say... John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. So essentially people aren't sure who, the, who he is, but there's some kind of confusion. That's hard for us to imagine, but the people are trying to put Jesus in a category. Maybe he's John the Baptist, maybe Elijah, maybe somebody else, but there, there's definitely something different about him. So then Jesus pushes into the issue, and this is where he wanted to go anyway in verse 20. But what about you? He asked, who do you say that I am? And this is where he wanted to get to. He wanted to know where are the disciples at? What do they believe? What are they seeing? Who do you say I am? And then Peter, the guy who we're going to study in a couple weeks. Peter answered, the Christ of God. Well, that sounds really good, Peter. So check it out. Peter has just confessed. He has just said with his mouth, you are Christ of God. So Peter has, if you will, um, become a Christian. Right? I mean, he's just said, you're the Christ of God. He's just confessed with his mouth, you're Christ. Who do you, I mean, what do you think? You're Christ. I mean, don't you know that, Jesus? You're Christ. So Peter has, in, in just his language alone, just confessed, and we could call Peter in this moment a Christian because he said it with his mouth. I mean, what more, really, what more is there? Sure, I've said it. There he is. So, verse 21. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. That's kind of weird. At first glance, it seems strange, but the time has not come for this news to get out. 
So, verse 22. And he said, this is what he said. So Peter, in light of that, you think I'm the Christ of God. Let me clarify to you, Peter, what, what this means. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Now, let me ask you, if you're trying to start a movement of people, and you're trying to start a, um, an initiative or whatever it is, are you, is this your rah-rah speech? Like, is this the best you have? Hey, Peter um, and disciples, I just want you to know, there's going to be suffering involved, and all of the elders and leaders, all the people who kind of make our society run, they're going to reject me. And consequently, if you say that he's the Messiah, what do you think they're going to think of you? I just want you to know, Jesus says, the Son of Man, he's going to suffer. He's going to be rejected by all of the local leadership that make up your community. They're all going to look at you weird. And then they're going to kill me. Oh, but don't worry, I'm going to come back to life again in three days. I'm telling you, Christians believe weird things. It's, it's weird. It's weird. So this is, this is his rah-rah speech. And then he said to them, verse 23, he said to them all, if anyone, and this is so important here, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily. And what's the next word? And follow. Follow me. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. So here's the thing. Peter just confessed, Jesus, you're the Christ of God, okay? I'm a Christian. And Jesus says, let me clarify for people who think everybody's a Christian. Let me just clarify. Here's what the Son of Man will do. He will suffer. He will be rejected. He'll be persecuted. He'll be killed. He'll raise again in three days. But I want you to know, if you really want to come after me, you will deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and not just say that I'm a Christian. You will follow me. You will follow me. That is so important. This past week, in fact, week and a half, if you've been following the news at all, a story has gone beyond the boundaries of the National Basketball Association with the Los Angeles Clippers owner, Donald Sterling, his private phone conversation being recorded and sent out to the masses of humanity, and no one is on Sterling's side, a racist comment that he made, which was quite offensive to anybody with um, anyone at all. Now, here's the thing. At this point now, um, the Los Angeles Clippers basketball team, of which I have never even watched, I think, a second of their games, at, maybe in my life, maybe in my life at some point. But at, all of a sudden, people have kind of rallied around the Clippers team, and, and someone said, hey, the Clippers are now America's team because they're kind of the, the anti-Donald Sterling. They're people who want to kind of get around and support the Clippers because, man, you've got an abusive, racist, blah, 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 boss, right? We can't believe you poor guys have to do that. And so we rally around the Clippers and kind of get behind them. Now, here's the thing. You might say, or I might say, let's just say I say, man, I'm now, I'm now for the Clippers. I've confessed with my mouth that I'm, I'm for the Clippers. I'm not following the Clippers. Are you kidding me? I can't even name their players. I mean, I don't even know what their record is. I don't really know anything about them. I'm, I'm guaranteeing you they will have no impact on my week at all. I guarantee you they will not help me make better decisions as a husband, as a father, anything like that. But I'm for the Clippers. And so confessing with your mouth and saying I'm a fan of something doesn't all of a sudden make you that something. Same thing for those who say I'm a Christian 
Well, good for you. Okay, good. All right, now what does that mean? Here's what Jesus says. If you think everybody's a Christian, let's get this together. He says, by the way, here's what that means. You're now following somebody who's going to die, be rejected, and suffer, and come back to life, and people are going to think, man, he's a fool, and you're a fool. And the people who do that are the people who say, I'm going to deny myself, take up my cross daily, and follow, follow me. Meaning that following is like what you do in any other part of your life, things that you follow. When you follow the Phillies, you know what's happening. You orient your day and your life, your week around that. When you follow the business leaders in your community, you know what's happening in your trending area of business because that makes a difference for you. You're following that. When you follow the blogs of young moms who are going to give advice about how to kind of do everything with no energy, you're following that, right? Because it's making a difference in your life. You're just giving time and attention to that. And this is what Jesus says, that it's not just enough to say, you are the Christ of God. In fact, James, Jesus' brother, will say later in the, the little book of James, even the demons believe God and shudder. I mean, you can be a demon, all right, and believe God. And Jesus is laying out to all of us in Luke chapter 9, listen, it's not just about, at some point in my life, I've said Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus says, listen up, take up your cross daily and follow me get after me like you do anything else that you follow that it makes a difference in how you become a dad and a mom and a boyfriend and a girlfriend and a roommate and a student and everything else that is part of your life okay now those who are in the nobody's a christian like me camp are inside cheering like hoorah yeah that's why we have our rules right that's why we have our system in play because we know that is true people in the everybody camp are like ooh. All right, heard a little bit. Let's move over to this camp. All right, let's move over to the people who really are saying no one is a Christian like me. All right. Now, if you have your Bible open with you still, let me invite you to turn over to Ephesians. Kind of flip forward in your Bible a couple of books, a couple of books, and Paul, another follower of Jesus, is writing in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. Small little book. Um, You'll find it right next to Galatians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. In Ephesians here, um, very popular passage for for church people. Um, But I want to begin early because we like the last part, but we don't like, it's hard to embrace the first part. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, and this is now I'm speaking to people who have wrestled with, and listen to me now, like me, all right, with the worldview that nobody, nobody's a Christian like me. Here's here's chapter 2, verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest of us, we were by nature objects of wrath. I want, you to, I want to pause there for a minute. For those of you who've grown up in a, um, in a church family or a church culture, church context, this is particularly dangerous for you and for me. 
this orientation to begin your faith journey to say, I'm a Christian. Okay, what does that mean? What Paul is saying here is, listen, you were, you were, you were dead. Come on now, you were, you were dead in your transgressions and your sins. You were dead in your transgressions in which you used to live. What do dead people do? Nothing, because they're dead. They don't, they don't have the energy to make themselves good enough for salvation. Dead people are just that, dead. They're not alive. In other words, dead people are not sitting around there trying to look better as dead people so that God will look at them and say, you're a better dead person than the next. No, you're all dead. This is what Paul's saying. You were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to walk, and all of us were by nature objects of wrath. So God looked at you, and I don't care how good you were, I don't care how strong your fame was, I don't care how much money you had, I don't care how long you've been in church or anything like that. Paul is saying you were all objects of wrath. Good for you on the rules. Way to go, never to watch an R-rated movie. Way to always wear long enough skirts. Good for you, good for you. Way to listen to only the right kind of music and never listen to country, which is kind of God's thing anyway. Okay, never to do that. Good for you, you know, way to go. Way to hold the rules so tight. Way to go. But listen, you were dead. You're dead in your transgressions and sins. And if we don't understand that to begin, then it is, it is just a natural and normal fit to say, yeah, nobody's a Christian like me. Paul's saying, listen, get, get it right from the start. You were, you were dead. You were dead in your transgressions and sins. And dead people do nothing. Okay? Now, verse 4. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in what? Mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were what? Even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace, it is by grace you've been saved. Because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy to you and to me looked out among all of us dead people. Said, you know what, you don't deserve a single thing of this. I don't, I don't care that you've been in church forever. I don't care that you've never sworn in your life. I don't care that you've kept all the rules of your system. You're still dead to me. But, because I'm rich in kindness, even when you're dead in your transgressions and sins, even when you could do nothing to make yourself stand out to me, I came to you. I came to you even when you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Now, he continues. Verse 6. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show how good our religious system was and how smart of people we were. Wait, I'm sorry, I got off track there a minute. Verse 7. In order that the reason being... The reason he came to you and came to me is so that he might show the incomparable riches of his what? Grace. That he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his, and what's that next word? Expressed in his what? Kindness to us in Christ Jesus. That God saved you and me out of our deadness to sin because he wanted to show off the riches of his grace and his kindness to us. It's an incredible thing because when we weigh his kindness and grace against our work system, come on, we've got, we've got nothing. Here's the problem for people who are stuck over here and nobody's a Christian like me. 
Like my system, my worldview system, my religious system, my way of coming to God, the way that I dress for church, the way that I talk, the way that I listen to whatever music or whatever I listen to, this is kind of the way to be Christian. The problem with that is we tend to think this. We tend to think that God's judgment leads to repentance, don't we? God will be angry with you if you go see that movie. God is angry at you if you're swearing. God is angry at you if you go to the bar. God is angry at you if you do this. Therefore, don't do that, and God's judgment leads to my repentance. And we couldn't be further from the truth. The same guy who wrote Ephesians said this in Romans chapter 2, verse 4. He's talking to us about our, our, our pushback to works and grace. Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that Check it out. God's kindness leads you toward repentance. It is the kindness of God that leads you and it leads me to turn to him and say, wow, I could never have come to you on my own. I was, I was dead. I was dead in my transgressions and sins. It is the kindness of our God, not the judgment of our God, that leads us to repentance, that he can show the incomparable riches of his grace. And this is then where Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, where if you're a a church person, you have already memorized this, that for it is by grace you have been saved. It is by grace you've been saved through faith. And this not of yourselves, not of works, lest anyone should boast. This is a hard truth for those over here in this category. Nobody's a Christian like me. I want to remind you, you started dead, you're going to finish dead. And God is going to come to you and save you. Not because you've ever been a better dead person than the person next to you but because of his great riches of kindness that he pours out to you. And so, implications of that. As you think about how you lead and serve in your family, and how you treat your husband and wife, who doesn't deserve your grace or favor, by the way, about how you treat your kids who are growing up and making all kinds of mistakes and all kinds of failings along the way, it's not judgment that leads to repentance. It's kindness that leads to repentance. It is also loving to discipline, make no mistake about that. God disciplines those he loves. I'm fair with that. That's right and good. Discipline leads to freedom and life and joy, and I'm, I'm good with that. But it is also this overriding principle that it is the kindness, the kindness, the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. It is our deadness in sin that changes our attitude, our perspective, our love, our care for everybody around us. That we say, man, Maybe I should stop thinking about, boy, they went to, they saw, they listened to, they dressed, they said, they spoke, they did. Nobody's a Christian like me, for it is by grace that you've been saved. If, If Jesus is God, then what he has to say about being a Christian and his idea about being a Christ follower, he probably has better ideas than I do about what this actually means. So, Let me ask you these two questions as we kind of land this plane. Number one, where do I need to follow? If you are listening to this this morning and you're thinking, you know what, Um, I've become kind of like Peter. I've been uh, someone who said Jesus is is God's son. He's the Christ of God. You probably didn't use that language, but you've said at some point I'm a Christian. 
and not even knowing maybe what that means for you, but you've just kind of said that. And you've thought that coming to church has been good enough for you. You've kind of thought that kind of going through some whatever hoops you need to is good. you kind of thought that as long as I haven't stolen too much money, as long as I haven't robbed, murdered, raped, whatever it is, whatever your bad sin category is, okay, whatever things that you, you know you'll never do, we set those up as things that make us feel good, right? So as long as I've not done those things, I'm in. Good. And I live in a good moral thing in place, and there we go. So let me, let me ask you. If Jesus is putting it out there and he says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily. And he says, he uses this strong verb, follow me, follow me. Then the question for you and for me becomes, where do I need to follow? Where do I need to follow? In other words, just like anything else that I follow, someone on Instagram, someone on Facebook, a blog, a sports team, a hobby, a business leader, whatever it is that I follow that influences me on a regular basis, would I say that Jesus is one of those influencers for me? Would I say that my parenting, my leadership, my love, my service to people, my financial perspective is driven, shaped, influenced by my following of Jesus? Where do I need to follow? Because it's not just everybody's a Christian like me. Deny yourself. Take up your cross daily. Follow him. Where do I need to follow? And then, second question in light of this. Where do I need grace? Where do you need grace? And another question. Who do you need to give grace to? Because of the grace that's been given to you. What has your spouse done that you're just like, I don't think I can ever forgive that? What have you done where you're thinking, I don't know if I can ever forgive myself. What about your boss? So you kind of have that eh, perspective toward that he will never get it, and she is just off. And your kids, who you are frustrated with. Who do you need? Where do you need to give grace to because of the great grace that was given to you and to me? God reached you and reached me when we were dead, 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 dead in our sins. There was nothing prettying up you could do or that I could do to deserve the salvation that we have. And so we offer the same stuff to people around us because that is how we have been saved. Where do you need to follow? And where do you need to give grace? If Jesus is God, then his idea of what it means to be a Christian It's probably going to be better than mine and probably going to be better than yours. Let's pray together. Our good God and Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can pause and reflect again on this difficult balance between action and doing and following, not just being in name only, a Christian, but getting after it, passionately pursuing greater relationship with knowledge of you and your son, your word, your truth. I pray for those of us who are stuck in a non-grace-oriented worldview, who are stuck judging, hoping that judgment leads to repentance, all the while missing that it was your kindness that led us to repentance, and having a really difficult time because of upbringing or whatever else it might be, having a really difficult time embracing the lavish grace that you poured out on us. I pray that we would be people 
men and women, boys and girls, who continue to almost be legalistic about grace, be passionate about grace, be full on with that, and be full on in our commitment to follow you regularly, to lead into a growing, vibrant relationship with Jesus Christ. Father, without you, we do, as this song says, fall apart. You're the one who who guides our heart, who gives us direction. And I pray that you'd give us courage, both to follow where we need to follow, to do the things that we know we need to do and we've been holding back on doing, and also to offer grace, sometimes to ourselves and sometimes to the people around us, knowing that that is exactly how you treat us as well. Father, we love you. We pray for grace, strength, and courage going forward. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.